Lord, we've been singing our hearts to you, our pledges to you, that we want to trust you with all our heart, knowing that you never fail, that we want to throw our heart and our soul and our whole lives into your hands because you're good. But God, we confess this morning that we are weak, that our strength and resolve, it fails. And so, God, we need you to strengthen us this morning. We need you to strengthen our souls, to be able to follow through on these resolves, to be able to follow through on the pledge of our heart. God, we need you to be drawn into a life of worship. And so as we open your word and as we hear from you today, God, we both long to hear from you good news good news about what you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, but ultimately, Lord, to be drawn through the news of what you've done to you. That you, God, would be the longing of our heart. That you and you alone would be the one that we seek, that we desire, that we love. God, would you draw us to yourself. Work powerfully in us to stir in us affections for you, desire after you, longing for you. God, we are hungry. We are thirsty for you. Would you meet us here today? We open our hearts, our minds, our lives to you now. Do with us as you see fit. In Jesus' name we worship and pray. Amen. Maybe see it. Uh, as you're taking your seat, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. If you're fairly new to the Bible, uh, the Psalms are pretty much in the middle. Um, So hopefully that'll be helpful. Uh, As you're uh, kind of pulling out your Bible there, I just want to give a a brief, really brief update. Our our team, our seven folks who are in Africa right now in Zambia, uh, sounds like from everything I've heard, uh, not only are they having a great time, but God is using them in powerful ways. Uh, but I do want to invite you to just continue to pray for them. Uh, seven people from this church in Zambia doing ministry, uh, sharing Christ, equipping uh, pastors and churches there. They will be there uh, through the rest of this week. And so as you pray for them specifically, I want to invite you to pray for their energy, pray for their strength. They had a long trip there, and they've been really pouring it out the last, uh, the, for the last week. And so I want to invite you to continue to pray for them. Um, Also today, right after this service, we have what's called a newcomer's lunch. If you're fairly new here to the church, if you're looking to connect with other people here, uh, we'd invite you to stick around for lunch right after the service, totally free, no agenda, uh, just some nachos and some people. We'd love for you to consider sticking around. Uh, And then also on the bulletin, uh, there's a couple other things. We're really excited in July to kick off Sunday seminars, studying the book of Revelation. Uh, Obviously, we are not going to look at every single verse, every single word of the book of Revelation but just hoping to give us all tools for, for studying a book like the book of Revelation. So would, uh, would you consider coming out on um, some Sunday nights in July? And then we also have the second Saturday in July, uh, a field day plan. Just, to, just an opportunity to, to have some fun, get to know some other people. Uh, maybe you're somebody who's kind of on the fringe and, and you've been coming here for a little while, but you don't actually know anybody. Something like that is a great opportunity to, to just show up on a Saturday, hang out with some other people in the church and, and feel more connected, feel more plugged in uh, here with the family. So uh, to Psalm Psalm 116, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, 
Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is God's word. So, Psalm 116. Here, here's where we find ourselves in this psalm. Uh, we got a guy who is feeling the pressure of death. His soul is in anguish because he knows he deserves death. It is as if hell itself has opened wide its arms and is inviting him in, and he knows there's nothing that he can do to stop from entering it. But then he cries out to God, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord, who is gracious, who is merciful, who is abounding in kindness, saves him, rescues him. And this psalm is a vision of what life ought to look like for those who have been saved from death. This psalm is a picture, is a, is a story of what a life ought to look like in response to being delivered from hell. Uh, I'm not a big country music fan. I would assume in this room there are probably some country music fans. Uh, and then the song I'm going to reference is pretty well known. Uh, this guy, fairly well-known guy named Tim McGraw. Ever heard of him? Tim McGraw? Uh, he wrote a, a pretty famous song called Live Like You Were Dying. Uh, in the song, he, he, he takes us through a story where somebody who's young gets a, a rough diagnosis. They find out that they're probably going to die earlier, earlier than we like to think is expected. And so the song asks the question, uh, what did you do? And the memorable lyrics go like this. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved deeper. And I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And then here, here's the part I want to draw out. And he said, someday, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. So what is the logic of this song? What is the logic of, uh, in, in Tim McGraw's mind? Uh, here's his point. You know, if you and I knew that we were going to be dying soon, we, we would sort of throw caution to the wind. If you and I knew that we were going to be dying soon, we would live a full life. If you, if you and I knew we were going to be dying soon, we would just run after our dreams. We would go for it. 
Well, Psalm 116 takes that same kind of logic, but then it elevates it even higher. It says, yeah, yeah, yeah. To live like you were dying, you know, that would be a powerful thing. Psalm 116, though, says, how, how should we live? What kind of life should we live if we have been delivered from death? What kind of life should we live if we have been promised immortality? What kind of life should we live if God has reached into hell and plucked us out with his saving power? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a powerful thing to, to sort of consider. What would I do? How would I live if I found out I was going to be dying soon? But how much more powerful, how much more impactful to know that we've been delivered from death? So this morning, we're going to be working through Psalm 116. And we're going to look at seven things that we should do in response to being delivered from death, in response to being saved by God from the death that we deserve. So first, the first response, let us love the Lord. Let us love the Lord. Verse 1, let me read it again. It says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Uh, this is a really special verse in the Bible. God actually, through His Word, puts, puts these words on our lips as we read them. I love the Lord. But as we're going to see throughout this whole psalm, all, all of the responses are grounded in what God has done for us. All the things that we are called to do are grounded in what God has already done for us. And so he says, I love the Lord. Why? Because, he says, He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So this morning, we're not just talking about uh, how we love the Lord. We're not just talking about the fact that we should love the Lord. This morning, we're talking about why it is that we love the Lord. Why? Why should you and I love the Lord? And the answer here in this psalm, and the answer throughout the whole Bible is this, that the reason we love God is because He has first loved us. That our love for God is a response to the fact that He has already loved us. And this strikes at a huge misconception that many of us are tempted to fall into. Many of us are tempted to think that, that we are called to live these good lives, and that if we live these good lives, that then God will accept us, and then God will bless us. That the reason we're supposed to love God is if, if we love Him in the right way, then He'll see us, and then He'll welcome us, and then He'll love us. But Psalm 116, it smashes that misconception to pieces. It says, no, 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 no. It's actually just the opposite. Not only do we not live a good life or, or love God hoping that He'll accept us, hoping that He'll bless us, hoping that He'll love us. No, it's, it's that we live our life loving Him because He has already loved us. He has already accepted and blessed us. Our love for Him is a response to His love for us. It is love that melts us into His arms. It is His love that woos us, that draws us out of our hardness into loving Him in return. Uh, there was a man named Nicky Cruz who was the leader of a violent gang in New York City in the 1950s. And in 1958, Nicky, Nicky Cruz had a radical conversion and God saved him. This hardened criminal, this hardened man had, had a radical transformation in his life. Uh, well, what happened? Well, uh, there was this pastor in New York City named David Wilkerson. And 
over a number of weeks and months, David Wilkerson attempted to befriend Nikki Cruz. He knew who Nikki was. He knew Nikki's reputation. And he began to befriend him. And he began to, began to try to tell him about Jesus. But time and time and time again, Nikki Cruz pushed him off, pushed him off, pushed him off. And it finally came to a head where Nikki Cruz was so fed up with this pastor trying to befriend him and trying to tell him about Jesus that he, that he cussed him out one day. And this is what he said. He, I quote, he says, you come near me again and I'll kill you. Now, how would you respond to someone who's a known killer? Someone who's the leader of a violent gang looks you in the face and says, you come near me again and I'll kill you. But Nikki Cruz wasn't expecting the response that he got. This pastor, David Wilkerson, responded. Yeah, you could do that. You could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street and every piece will still love you. Nikki Cruz wasn't ready for that. And when Pastor David Wilkerson responded like that, it melted his heart. And over the next few weeks, it gave the pastor the opportunity to begin to tell Nikki why it is that he would love him to the point of even being willing to love him through death. It was the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who has died for us in our sins. And eventually, Nikki was melted to the point where he, he turned to, to the Lord. He turned to God. But see, it was love for him that melted him. It was love for him that softened his heart and heart. And it is the love of God for us that draws our love out for him. We don't love God hoping that he'll love us in return. No, we love God because he has already loved us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the first and most obvious response to being delivered from death is to love God, to love the one who saved us. Uh, second this morning, the second response is, let us call upon the Lord. Let us call upon the Lord. I want to read verses 2 through 6. <clears throat> verses 2 through 6 say, Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Uh, every single person who comes to the realization that God is a holy God and the realization that they are a sinner has a moment of crisis just like what we see in this psalm. That the reality of what we deserve for our sin is death. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's like a snare that entangles us and it grips tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter upon us. This is a picture, this is a snapshot of somebody who has come to the end of their rope. They have exhausted all their options. They know there's nothing they can do to save themselves. But what the psalmist finds at the end of the rope is a God who saves sinners. 
Look at the end of verse 6. It says, When I was brought low, He saved me. When I was brought low. We tend to think that being brought low is the worst thing in life. To be brought low is what we avoid more than anything. But maybe, maybe this morning if you're here and you've been brought low, it's exactly where God wants you. That it's from that low place. It's from that place of neediness where God reveals Himself as a God who saves, a God who gives mercy, a God who rescues us even from death itself. And because God saved him, the psalmist makes this pledge in verse 2. He says, Therefore, therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. So what's he saying? He's saying, well, once we've experienced salvation, now we know where our help comes from. Once we've gone to God and we've cried out to mercy and we found Him to be, like it says in verse 5, this God who is gracious, righteous, and merciful, then we know that we ought to go to Him again and again and again and again. And as we go to Him again and again and again and again, we know that we will be met with His abundant mercy. I was talking about this passage earlier this week with a few folks and uh, Bryce Gerald, who's a member here, uh, who works, serves with Campus Outreach uh, over at Coastal, he said that this, uh, this part of the passage reminds him of seagulls. You know, when you're at the beach and you make the mistake of giving one seagull the smallest little crumb of bread, you are now in trouble. That the seagulls all know, and they come and they flock, and then they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. It's the same kind of thing that happens in my neighborhood. we get got these really ugly-looking geese things. And you know when they're all sort of huddling around the same houses, you know that they made the mistake of feeding that thing. And now it just comes back, and it comes back, and it comes back. Well, Psalm 116 is saying, hey, if God has saved me, if He rescued me, if He showed me mercy, then I ought to come back to Him again and again and again and again. I ought to make it my habit to cry out to Him for help every single time I need it because I'll be met with a God who is abundant in mercy. Why don't we, though? Why don't we go back to Him again and again? Well, it's our foolishness. In Galatians 3, verse 4, there are two back-to-back questions. Galatians 3, verse 4 asks this. Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Apostle Paul, he's, he's looking at a church, a church that started well, that at the beginning, they cried out for mercy. At the beginning, they knew who to call upon. At the beginning, they needed the Holy Spirit of God to resurrect their hearts and bring them from death to life. But now, they've become foolish. They thought that maybe somehow, although it started with God, it started with Him, now it's up to them. That maybe, yeah, maybe they needed to depend on God at the moment when they were at their lowest. But now, sort of the goal of life is for them to, to try as hard as they can to prove to God what they can do in their own strength. How foolish. How foolish. Now, if, if we want to understand what a foolish life looks like, a foolish life is a life lived believing that we can handle everything 
in our own strength. That is the foolish life. So then what is the wise life? What does it mean to live a wise life? A life of wisdom is a life where we make a habit of calling upon the name of the Lord. In Psalm 14, a couple of years ago, when we were in Psalm 14, if you're, if you're fairly new here, we've been working through the Psalms over the last couple of years. I promise it hasn't been consecutive, okay? We've taken some breaks. But a couple of years ago, we were in Psalm 14, and it says, the fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But it's not just saying that to be foolish means that you don't believe in God. That's not, that's not, it's not exactly precisely what that means. It means it is foolish to live as if God doesn't exist. It is foolish to live as if in every single moment of my need, there isn't a God who is rich in mercy and who is willing to come and help and pour out His grace into my life. Now, the wise life is a life that is filled with help, 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 because we desperately need it. So if we've come to Him and we found help, then we should come again and again and again. Let's not live a foolish life. Uh, the third thing we're going to see as we, as we continue to see these responses to being delivered from death. Third, this morning, let us rest in the Lord. Let us rest in the Lord. Verse 7 says, Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You know, if I were to be honest, throughout this whole psalm, I would say this is probably the, the piece that's been hitting me the hardest this week. That I'm in a season of restlessness, a season where it seems like I'm uncomfortable. But the mistake we make, the mistake that we all tend to make is when we get in that restless position, we get a little bit uncomfortable, is to go looking for rest everywhere but in God. See, but this psalmist is learning if, if God is the one who's delivered me from death, if He's the one who reached into hell and plucked me out, if He's the one who's shown me mercy and showered grace upon my life and rescued my soul, then I need to return to my rest. How? How do I do that? He says, by remembering just how good God has been to me. He says, return to your rest. Return to your rest, O my soul, for... The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. See, we go back to the gospel and we remember that there is nothing that God could give us that could be any more generous than what He has already given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That if what you and I deserve for our sin was death, and that means separation from God, that means an eternity away from Him, that if that's what we deserve, if that's where our life is headed until he comes and, and intersects and interjects, then for Jesus to come and rescue us must be the most precious gift that we could ever receive. How could anyone ever deal more bountifully, more generously than what God has done for us in Jesus? And so what we hear from the cross as our Savior is dying for our sins, what we hear him say there is, it is finished. And that is where we find our rest in our relationship between us and God. Remember we talked earlier about this, this misconception that somehow I'm supposed to get God on my side. That somehow I'm supposed to do these things to make Him bless me, make Him accept me, make Him love me. And Jesus Christ from the cross says, no, 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 it is finished. 
And so every day we need to wake up and return to our rest. Where? Our rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it's not just our relationship with God that gives us turmoil. It's not just our relationship with God that can tend to make us feel restless. It is that then subsequent realization that the God, that the, the Christ who said it is finished has showed us that God is for us. That means in whatever situation I'm in, I know that there are the everlasting arms holding me up. There is God's resurrection power being poured out into my life. That there's absolutely no weapon formed against me that will prosper. That when Jesus said it is finished, it meant God is for us. And that is the place of our rest. Yes, life is restless. Yes, life gets crazy. But here's the exciting thing. There is a peace that God gives in the midst of chaos, in the midst of turmoil. Uh, this world uh, has a lot to say right now about, about the idea of self-care. Self-care. Uh, there's a place for that, okay? Uh, but, but the idea is that finding rest or the, te- the, the, the opportunity to experience rest has never felt more attainable than at this point in the history of the world. That whatever luxuries, whatever comfort, whatever massage or golf or face cream or time alone or night out with the girls or whatever you want to find rest, it's at your fingertips. And yet for all of our attempts to find rest, it's always elusive. Why? Because there is a deeper rest. There is what this psalm calls a rest of the soul that you cannot put a price tag on. Here's what I'm learning in my life. Rest is not found in money. Just ask people who have lots of it. Rest is not found in nice, lush, big, fancy houses. Just ask the people who have to maintain them. Rest is not even found in rest. No. The rest we long for, the rest we crave, the rest that our souls ache after can only be found in the Lord. In that it is finished from the cross from the declaration that God is for us. And every day we go out and we live and life gets crazy and our eyes go in other directions. And man, this would be a great verse to memorize. Return, return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You see what you're doing when you say this psalm? You're actually talking to yourself. You're saying, oh, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't think that your rest is in anything else. Don't think that you can find your rest in anything else in this world. No, return to your rest, but return to it in the Lord, in the Lord who is good, who is abundant in mercy, in the Lord who has from the cross said to you, it is finished. So if God's delivered us, let us rest in Him. The fourth response this morning, let us walk before the Lord. Let us walk before the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 say, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Uh, So what's he saying? Well, he's saying, 
the psalmist is saying, well, if God's delivered me from death, if he has rescued my soul, if he's poured out his mercy upon me, if he has saved me, then I'm going to live my life walking before him. Okay, but what does it mean to walk before someone? What does that mean, to walk before someone? Well, I don't know. Here's one way to think of it. Um, If you you were to go to a fashion show, what would you see? Well, you see people who are literally, quite literally, walking before other people. And what's their job? Their job is to look pretty. Their job is to posture. Their job is to show off. Their job is to realize that everybody's watching me, the cameras are on, and I've got to look a certain way to, to show off for all these people that are in front of me. And what this psalmist understands is that for you and I, all day long, we know that eyes are on us. We know that people are watching. And so the, the, the temptation we fall into is to begin to posture, to begin to perform, to begin to try to live our lives, to look a certain way, to win the approval of other people. Maybe for some of you, it's your, your parents. That every single decision you make, all you can think about is, will my parents be happy with this decision? Maybe it's your peers, your friends, the people that are your same age. I mean, how sad is it that so many of us end up living our lives according to the same way that everybody else lives around us just, so that, just because we're trying to keep up with them? It's like we go out and we totally max out and we tax ourselves and we run ourselves into the ground just because we care about the way other people think about us. Maybe you're somebody who thinks, ah, I don't care about what anybody thinks. I would bet, though, I would bet that you are your toughest critic that you've come up with some standard for your life, that you've come up with some idea of what your life ought to look like, and pretty regularly you know that you don't meet your own standard. The psalmist is inviting us into the freedom this morning of walking before God. And here's what happens. There's a double freedom in walking before God. First is this. That if I'm living my life before Him, if I'm walking before the Lord, then it sets me free from walking before other people. It sets me free from posturing and performing and trying to keep up and making sure that I'm always keeping everybody else around me happy. Why? Because I'm focused on Him. I'm walking before Him. But here's the other side of what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, if what we've been talking about is true, that we don't love God hoping that He'll love us back, That we don't live for him hoping that he'll bless us and accept us, but rather he's already loved us. He's already accepted us. He's already blessed us. What it means is that our walk before the Lord is not a performance. Our walk before the Lord is not us posturing, hoping that if we just do the right thing, if we just say the right thing, if we just say yes to the right opportunity, that God will shower down his blessings upon us. No, 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 no. We walk before the Lord knowing that we're already under his smile. He's already said yes to his blessing over our lives. Walking before the Lord is the freedom that we long for, the freedom that we need. It sets us free from the approval of man. And it sets us free from thinking that we somehow have to get God in our corner. No, if we've been delivered from death, if we've been set free, we walk before the Lord. What do we do when we're stuck, when we feel stuck, when we feel like we're in that? Uh, Here's maybe one way we talk to ourselves. You know, we ask ourselves, Can my parents deliver me from death? Can can my peers, my neighbors deliver me from death? Could I have even delivered myself from death? No. If if these other people can't deliver me from death, but God has, then I walk before Him. I walk before the one 
who has raised me up with Christ, who has seated me with Him in the heavenly places. So coming to grips with, the, with God's deliverance of our souls means seeing God as big, seeing God as worth our life, and seeing people as small. Fifth response, let us trust in the Lord. Let us trust in the Lord. Verses 10 and 11 say, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So just like experiencing the reality of God's salvation means that we go back to Him for help again and again and again, once we know that He's delivered us from death, once we know that He's plucked us out of hell and saved us unto Himself, we can know that in every circumstance and every affliction and every difficult situation that we can trust the Lord. Uh, but, but the reason I think it's worth highlighting the, uh, this section on its own is actually verse 11. That yes, it is good to trust God for His trustworthiness. Yes, it is good to trust God for His faithfulness. But there's another reason that you and I ought to trust God. Here's what we see. The reason we trust God is because there's no one else to trust. He says, all mankind, show me every person in the world. They're all liars. That means you, that means me. That means everything I would trust, everything I could put my hope in, every person that I could think that I would put my trust in, they'll all let me down. They'll all fail me. That if I nail my life to a moving anchor, that is not a recipe for success. But there is one anchor, there is one person who will not move, who will not change, who will not let me down, and that is God Himself. And so He's saying, in the midst of the turmoil, I've learned, if He's delivered me from death, if He has promised me immortality, if He has rescued me from, the, from what I deserve in my sin, then He is a safe anchor for me. He is a place that I can trust no matter what. And so there might be times in our life where we don't necessarily feel the positive side of that. We don't necessarily feel like, man, I can trust God because He's so great, He's so awesome, He's so trustworthy. But at least this thought can come to our mind. That when life gets crazy, when life gets hard, it's, God, I trust you because I've got nothing else. I've got no one else. Everything else is shifting sand. Everything else is a moving target. But you are true. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. So if He's rescued us from death, we trust Him, even in affliction, even in suffering. Sixth, sixth, let us celebrate the Lord. Let us celebrate the Lord. Uh, verse 12, we're about to read verse 12. Verse 12 is the heart of the psalm. Right? It, it's right at the middle, and, and everything else in the psalm has been hinging on this question that the psalm asks in verse 12. He says, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? See what he's saying? He's saying, if God is who He says He is, if, and if God has shown me mercy, if God has listened to my prayers, if God has met me in my crisis, if God has saved me from my sins, from death, from hell, if that's who God is, what should I give Him in return? What should I offer up to God as a response to what He's done for me? What should I render to the Lord for all of the endless benefits that come from Him to me? And He begins in verse 13 saying, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, you, you see there in your seat, you've got the elements, the bread and the cup. And when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're celebrating Jesus. We are remembering and commemorating His body that was broken for us, His blood that was poured out for us. We are celebrating again that someone has died in our place, that someone has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath that you and I deserved, and He drank it so that you and I can take up the cup of salvation and enjoy it. This is what we're celebrating. You know, a lot of times with the Lord's Supper, it tends to be, be this really contemplative thing where we're hard on ourselves and we think it's all about confessing our sins. And you know what? There's an element of that that's, that's helpful. But that side of the Lord's Supper only came in because people weren't celebrating it appropriately. That when it was first given, it was just given as a celebration. It was given as a remembrance. It was given as a commemoration that we have a Savior who's conquered the grave. That we have a Savior who has ushered us into eternal life. And so this morning, in a few minutes, when we do take the supper, we're going to take it as a celebration, lifting the cup of salvation to our Savior Jesus. Uh, the family I grew up in wasn't really big on toasts. Uh, I don't know, it just kind of wasn't our thing. But the family I married into, they're all about toasts. It's like every meal, everything, every time we get together, it's got to happen, right? It doesn't matter whose birthday it is, whose birthday it was three months ago. We're lifting the glass, and somebody's going to say, here's to so-and-so. Here's to so-and-so. We love you. We thank you. We're so happy you're in this family. What are we doing in that moment? You know, we all clank our glasses around, and it, it's kind of weird, right? But, but, but what you're doing is you're, you're just celebrating that person. You're honoring that person. Here, here's the question that, that you and I have to ask. What do you give someone in return who needs nothing? What shall I render to the Lord? What do you give God? What do you give a God who already has everything? This psalm is teaching us the, the best thing you can do is simply to celebrate Him. To celebrate the gifts that He's given. There's nothing we can give that's going to match what He's given us. And there's nothing that we can give that He doesn't already have. So what we give to Him First and foremost is our heart, our celebration, our joy. We simply enjoy who He is and what He's done for us. Hmm. Uh, finally this morning, seventh, in response to God's salvation, in response to being delivered from death, <clears throat> let us commit to the Lord. Let us commit to the Lord. I want to pick up in verse 14 and just read through the end of the psalm. And what I want you to notice is how the psalmist time and time again says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's answering his own question in verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? And he's, he's making a pledge. He's saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's committing himself to the Lord. Psalm 116, starting in verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I 
am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Right? That question, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? If I were to just, uh, how can I just mount up everything possible that I could possibly give back to God? What would it be? And it's, it's like it almost culminates here in verse 16. You know, there's a lot of different things we could highlight. You know, he talks about paying his vows. He talks about giving thanks. He talks about praising God. He talks about calling on the name of the Lord. But if we could sort of boil it all down in, in its most distilled form, here it is in verse 16. I am your servant. That in my gratitude, in my thankfulness, if you've delivered me from death, if you've plucked me out of hell, if you've saved my soul, then I am yours. I'm not my own anymore. I, I don't belong to me, Lord. I belong to you. Take me, use me. Whatever you want from my life, I live to serve you. In the early 18th century, there were two young Moravians who heard of an island where a British atheist had captured two to 3,000 slaves and had taken them to, to work this island that he owned. And this owner, this British atheist owner said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, we'll keep him in a house separate until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. And when these two young boys, these Moravian German boys, who were in their 20s, heard about this, they said to themselves, you know, we can't go as preachers, we can't go as clergy, we can't go as missionaries, but what we could do is we could sell ourselves into slavery and go as slaves. And we could tell these two to 3,000 people who will never hear about Jesus about the love of God that we have found in Jesus Christ. And so they go and they sell themselves and their community, their family, gathers around to see them off, knowing they would never see them again. Their family members are, as you can imagine, weeping, emotional, overtaken with a weird mixture of grief. And when the two young boys got on the boat, as their boat got further and further away, it's said that they linked arms, raised their hands, and shouted across the water, May the lamb that was slain 
receive the reward of his suffering. These were two young men who understood that they had been saved from death to life, who knew that there was a lamb who was slain for them in their place, who were willing to forego their dreams, their hopes, their life, the opportunity at a family, so that Jesus Christ would receive the reward for his suffering. First in them, as willing servants, as willing sacrifices on behalf of their Savior Jesus. But then so that others might hear the good news about a God who is rich in mercy, a God who is full of love, So this morning, I want to invite you to take out your communion elements. As you look at the bread, you look at the cup, We remember that the reason we get to hold the cup of salvation is because Jesus took the cup of wrath. The reason that you and I can celebrate being saved from death is because our Savior Jesus was strangled to death on the cross. That we look at these elements and yes, We see in them our commitment to God, our call to give ourselves to Him. But more fundamentally, what we see in the bread and the cup is God's commitment to us. His willingness to hold nothing back to save us, nothing back to receive us back to Himself. And so as we look at the bread and we look at the cup, how can we not ask ourselves, what shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? What shall I give God in return? And know that the answer is everything. My whole life. That I am not my own anymore. That I belong to the Lamb who was slain for me. That He owns my heart. He owns my life. How can we not in gratitude say, Lord, if you've given all for me, then I give all to you. On the night before Jesus died, uh, he was there with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he told them to eat in remembrance of him. And so now we eat this bread celebrating the body that was broken for us. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Take this and do it in remembrance of me. And so this morning we celebrate, we celebrate our Savior as we drink the cup of salvation. Drink in remembrance of the Lord. Lord, we don't always 
sense, the full weight, the full reality of your benefits to us. Lord, in just a few minutes this morning, we, we've just been trying to see what a life would look like in response to who you are, what a life would look like in response to your salvation. But we know, God, we know that we need you to work this deep into our heart, that we would be willing to say, Lord, take me, use me. I'm all yours, knowing that Jesus has given all for us. God, we want our lives to live, to glorify, to thank the Lamb who was slain. We join the psalm this morning and just say, we love you, God. We love you. We love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. We belong to you. Pray all these things in worship in the name of Jesus. Amen.